They had a good time of bowling last night. The youth went out for Kai and Mariana and some of the other young people went out to bowl and they had a great time. I went for the pizza but didn't stay for the bowling. <laughs> so, but you know you got to go for the good part, right? So, and just a, a word on uh, Kay Anderson uh, who passed away. As Ken said this last week, there's a graveside Tuesday and then there's a memorial coming up. Um, out there uh, where they live, and um, it's in uh, March, and so we just want to be praying for the family, and um, Kay uh, unfortunately came down with some dementia, and uh, it's been a struggle for her and for the family these last several years, and so in a way it's a blessing, she goes to be with her Lord and Savior, and so uh, we just want to honor her in that way and just be praying for the family, even if you don't know them. You know what it's like to lose a loved one, I'm sure, and it's always a, a struggle. Um, this morning we find ourselves back in the book of Second uh, Thessalonians, in our fifth message here, and we're talking about the joys and sorrows of his coming, and we've been taking our time as we uh, peruse this book. And uh, we've been focusing in the last couple of weeks on verses 6 through 10, which describe the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the second letter, hence the name Second Thessalonians, that the Apostle Paul wrote to this incredible church, this New Testament church, even though it was a small, uh, just starting church, uh, probably not even a year old in the Lord, um, he really saw that they were marked by genuine transformation, real salvation that transformed their hearts and their lives from their pagan backgrounds and they came to know Christ and they were beginning to exhibit the love and the grace and the hard work that it takes to live as a believer in a lost and dying world. And so they were enduring a lot of persecution. They were under pressure. They had been faithful, persevering, steadfast, and their testimony had really gone out to all these other churches saying, hey, look to them. If you want somebody to look to as an example, look to the Thessalonians because their, their testimony spread everywhere. Um, and, you know, when you look through, we've gone through the first letter, first Thessalonians, and now we're in the second letter. And when you go through these, these letters from the Apostle Paul, um, he, you notice he never really brings up any issue where this church was deficient in any way. He's praising them, whether it was doctrinally or in their conduct. And that speaks to their amazing um, faithfulness as a church, that even the Apostle Paul couldn't point at something and say, hey, now they had issues. There's no perfect church. Don't get me wrong, but um, this one was an example for all the other churches. And yet, with that being said, we've been looking at some very difficult verses in verses 6 through 10 that Paul writes them, and he wants to encourage their hearts, but amidst the encouragement are some of Scripture's most profound and serious warnings to the church. And they come in the fifth chapter of First um, Thessalonians, and they take up again in the in the second, uh, the first and second chapter of the second letter of Thessalonians, and so he wants to encourage them, but at the same time, he he wants to make sure that they have a 
kind of a reverential awe before a holy God. Because he wants to make it clear that Christ is coming back. This isn't a fanciful tale that somebody spun uh, when they had a bad pizza one night. You know, a bad dream or something. No, this is real. This is, this is very real things that we are speaking about. And I would say nowhere in any epistle is there any uh, other power and potency of warning of eternal judgment than what we see before us here this morning and what we've been looking at the last several weeks. Now, you know Paul, you know he's an apostle, and I would say that you could call him a uh, judgment preacher. He didn't hold back when you read his letters, whether it's in Romans, Ephesians, all the other letters that he wrote throughout the New Testament. He doesn't hold back. He doesn't cloak things that are bad news in, in a rosy little bow and tie it up. And No, he says, this is the way it is, folks. And this is what we're looking at this morning. And so Paul was a preacher who was very honest with what God revealed to him. He spoke about judgment often. He spoke about sinners often, as you read through Romans even. Um, and he tells us in his writings that sinners... Are, re- are storing up wrath against the day of wrath. He, t- he goes there all the way back in Romans 2. He begins to tell us that. He said, as people live in an ungodly way, and they reject God, and they reject the gospel, this is what he wants us to understand, God is patient. Praise the Lord. God is patient. God is even tolerant. God displays mercy, God displays love, and his, his forgiveness is freely offered to all. And yet in the face of that, we have on the face of the earth today sinners who carry out their open rebellion against God. Even though God is, is patient and tolerant and merciful. But trust me, all of this is being recorded in heaven. Everything we see going around us, beloved, there, there's not one tiny little sin that somebody's going to get away with one day. Everything, everything will be held to account. And God is keeping a record of all the offenses against him in heaven. And they are accumulating to that day which will come, that scripture refers to it as the day of wrath. The day of wrath. I mean, we're so used to talking about the love of God. We're so used to talking about the mercy of God and his grace and his patience that it really exploits its sinfulness freely and joyfully. The world really relishes in sin. I mean, what's God going to do? That's kind of their attitude. And you've all seen that on colorful display If you've watched the news, if you've watched talk shows, if you've seen it in society, it's all around us. And because God doesn't judge that that sin immediately, when you see somebody sin, it's not like a bolt of lightning comes out of heaven and just strikes them dead. I mean, there were occasions throughout the Bible where that did happen. And what happened? It put a fear of God in, in the hearts and lives of the people. Right, Because they realize, whoa, this God, you can't mess around with God. This is not something to take lightheartedly. And that's why, you know, even when we, when we come to worship, when we come to gather as the church, it should be something that we take very seriously. 
This is something that God looks upon and he, he rejoices in, but at the same time, he expects us to prepare our hearts before we get here. You know, we don't, God doesn't deserve us dragging ourselves in, you know, by the skin of our chinny chin chin and just plopping down and going, well, I hope something's good today because I just had a tough week. You know, pump me up, pastor. Come on, worship team, pump me up. I need something today. If that's the attitude, we're not going to pump you up. (laughs) No hope for that. And if we do, it's not going to last. You're going to go right back to the old defeated, defeated self when you walk out. That's not our goal. See, when we come together as a, as a church and we worship, we should be beginning really preparing our hearts even Saturday, Saturday evening. Saying, hey God, what, who, maybe you want me to minister to somebody tomorrow in church. Maybe you want me to get there a little earlier so I can be an encouragement to those who are already serving when I get there. Maybe I just need to touch base with somebody I haven't talked with in a while. But see, if you're just dragging yourself in and you've had such a tough week and you're just plopping yourself down and you're not looking to minister to anybody, you know, that's, not, that's not honoring to the Lord, frankly. You know, we need to, to make sure that we're here to serve, to serve each other, to serve the Lord. And that's, for the most part, all of us do that to some extent. But we just need a, a check in our hearts sometimes because sometimes we just drag ourselves in here and, boy, just got to get through the morning. Just get through the morning, you know. Um, you know, that's kind of sometimes in my heart. Just get through the songs and then we can go to the next phase, you know. And that's not honoring to the Lord. You know, it, it's good to be able to have, at least now, a, a little broader team on the worship team, musicians, where, you know, you don't feel like you're carrying the whole load. Thank God for Bob and Rudy and Ken and singers and everybody that participates because it really adds to not only the worship of your own pastor but the congregation and see we get so used to God's mercy and so so used to the idea of thinking that well you know what divine justice when we hear about it our 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 go-to is well that's not fair you know, when you, when you hear of God judging somebody or you, you hear of something, you read something in Scripture, well, that doesn't seem fair. That's a very, very deadly mistake to make when you're talking about a holy God. Because if you don't understand God is holy, He is far removed from us in every way. There's nothing that God could ever do that would be even construed as being wrong or unjust, or unrighteous. Because he is holy, that's what makes him God. And Scripture tells us throughout Scripture, really, there is no fear of God before the eyes of men. They look at God either as this, you know, big happy grandpa in heaven that just welcomes everybody and forgives everybody's sin, or they look at him as some guy that's angry up there shaking his fist at everybody. And neither one is a correct depiction of what Scripture tells us. But there's no fear of God today in society. There's no, no fear of judgment. There's really, broadly speaking, there's no, not even any fear of hell. Think about it. People celebrate hell today. I don't know if you've witnessed anybody, but you go out and you witness to people and you say, you know, man, I don't want you to go to hell. You know, you need to repent of your sins and turn to Christ. They go, hey, I'm going to hell with my friends. We're going to party it up. 
I mean, you know, you look at, I didn't see it, but I heard people talking about it, whatever happened at that movie thing on TV, where I guess they were dressed up as Satan or whatever. I don't know what was going on, but that's where we're at today. They celebrate it. They celebrate it. There's no fear of it. And, and when people do speak of judgment and kind of fear before the Lord, in general, people go, oh, I don't want to hear about that. Don't, you know, can't we move on to being happy in Jesus? <laughs> As a matter of fact, people even look at the Apostle Paul's writings because he was so severe and so judgmental and so in a good way, in an honoring way, and so, um, you know, the way he spoke of holiness and sin, it was just right in your face. There's a lot of even, quote, I wouldn't call them true Christians, but people that call themselves Christians, that will tell you, well, I don't read Apostle Paul. I only read the words in red because I know Jesus is all about love. Jesus loves everybody. God is love. Didn't you read that in the Bible somewhere? And that's where they land. We live in a society that we land on love. And so when someone speaks of the holiness of God or someone speaks of the judgment of God or the righteousness of God or the justice of God, We say, I don't want to hear that. We put our hands in our ears and we say, no, 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 just tell me about the love of God. I only want to focus on the love of God because there is no fear of hell. There is no fear of a holy God anymore. And so people are saying, well, I don't read the Apostle Paul. I'm only going to talk about Jesus. Well, they're showing their own ignorance because if you've read any of the New Testament... Jesus spoke a lot more about hell and sin and sinners and judgment than Paul ever would even thought of. And, and so you, you have to stop and you have to say, wow, these people are very, very much deceived. Now, Jesus preached love. He preached kindness. He preached grace, forgiveness, and compassion. But when you look at Scripture and you look at what Jesus preached on, he was even more of a judgmental preacher than the Apostle Paul. You could classify Jesus as a, you know, have you ever heard a hellfire preacher? You know, it seems like they were just angry talking about, well, Jesus comes across as a hellfire preacher most of the time in the New Testament. He spoke in very explicit terms about things like unquenchable fire, about the, the conscious everlasting punishment for those who don't know Christ. I mean, you think of the famous sermon that everybody always likes to quote, you know, the Sermon on the Mount in the, in the fifth chapter. of He, he, he talks there and he, he says, you know what? He talked about the fires of hell in that sermon. That's the first sermon he was recorded of Christ in the New Testament. And later on in the, the book of Matthew in chapter 10, he said this. This is from the lips of our Lord himself, verse 28, Matthew 10, 28. He says, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the soul and body in hell. Now, a lot of us hear that and we go, I don't like that verse. (laughs) It doesn't make it untrue, my friend. Christ is speaking truth or he's not God. I mean, even... Jesus, when he was talking about the religious leaders of his day, you know, um, on Wednesday nights, we're doing a study through the book of Jude, and Jude kind of exposes a lot of false heresies and a lot of false teachers, and we're having to talk about that, and 
We're getting to a point where we're going to actually unveil some of the false teachers that are literally out there in the world today. And, you know, everybody says, well, you shouldn't name names. No, we should name names. If you don't, how would anyone know who you're talking about? And this isn't coming from an ego that says, oh, we're the only ones that are right, nobody else is. No, but these, these blatant heresies are so clear and so outrageous, you would not be doing due diligence if you didn't point them out. But he said to the, the religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees and the scribes of Israel, this is what Jesus said to them in Matthew 23, 15. He says, woe to you. In other words, that's not a good thing. When you hear God say, whoa, that's, that's not, hey, come on, let's, let's have a good time. No, you don't want to ever hear the words woe from God. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Then he says hypocrites. He just, Jesus just points it out. For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, kind of a convert to their way. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. Wow. Talk about damning words. He also told a story about a rich man and a beggar in his parables. And he said that the rich man died and was in hell, in torment. Not for a couple days, not for a couple of weeks, for all eternity. In Matthew 25, 46, he talk of, spoke of eternal punishment, Jesus did. He says, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. It's funny when you talk even to believers, or professing believers, I should say, they say, oh, I have eternal life and stuff, but I don't believe that God punishes people eternally in hell. I don't, I don't, my God's not that kind of a God. He would never do that. And what are they doing? They're recreating God in their own, in their own minds to make up a, a false God, really. In Matthew 8, he, he spoke of eternal punishment, and he speaks of it as outer darkness, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you ever been in so much pain that you bite your lip? Or you start you know, grinding your teeth? That's what these people are going to be doing for all, all eternity. In John chapter 5, he says that God has made him, Christ, the judge. See, we think Jesus of the Savior. We don't think of him as a judge much because we're living in the church age, the day of grace. Christ has his arms open wide. Come on to me, all ye who are, are weary, who are burdened, who are thirsty. I'll meet your needs. You put your faith, your trust in me. Christ is there as a Savior. Open arms to whoever will confess him as Lord and Savior. He will save you from your sin. The problem is most people don't think they have any sin. Or they don't think their sin is bad enough for, to need a Savior. I mean, what do I do wrong? I just you know, maybe tell a lie now and then or take a paperclip from work. It's not mine. I mean, surely God's not going to. Hey, one little white lie is still a lie. And you're dealing with a holy God. You're not dealing with a God who grades on a curve. He's not going to look at you and go, oh, oh okay, well, you didn't, you didn't steal that much. You, you only stole five paper clips. You know, the other guy stole ten. He's going to hell, but you're not. I'll, I'll give you a pass. No, he doesn't grade that way. It's all or nothing. As a matter of fact, when Jesus asked 
was explaining to his disciples and even the leaders of the day, he was telling them how you get to heaven. And they said, well, how can you do that? He says, well, you have to be what? You have to be perfect as my father is perfect. And they said, well, then who, who can be saved? Who can be perfect, right? Well, in and of yourselves, guess what? You can't be. So just stop trying. Stop trying to clean yourself up to get a bigger hug from God. It's not going to work. It never works that way. You have to come to the end of yourselves as a, as a, as a non-believer and say, you know what, I've been trying for years, trying to go to church and confession and communion. and I even got baptized a couple times. And, oh, and we go down that road and we think somehow all those good works are going to save us on the day of wrath, on the day of judgment. When we stand before God, he's going to go, oh, oh, you're a member of Grace Bible Church. Yeah, you can come on in, no problem. No, that's not going to be the question. The question is going to be, what did you do with my son? What did you do with my son? My son who I gave to the world to die a cruel death and pay completely for the sins of all those who would put their faith and trust in my son. I mean, if, if I had a, you know, a Porsche out in front of the fellowship hall, brand new Porsche, tied in a big red bow. You can even make an electric Porsche if you want. I don't care. Whatever your, whatever your Porsche of choice is. Yep, it's over there. If you want it, just go take it. I mean, wouldn't it be silly of you to sit here and to argue, well, why isn't it a Ford? You know, it should be a Ford. It's, not, it's a Porsche. It's a foreign car. Or, you know, why couldn't he have gotten this? Or why no. You know, this is a free gift. But what do we do with Christ, who's a free gift? Well, I just don't agree that he's the only way. I think I can kind of fudge my way around him somehow and get to heaven, whether it's through my church membership or baptism or whatever. No, no. The Word of God says there's only one mediator. There's only one go-between God and man, and that's who? The Lord Jesus Christ. There's only one way to heaven, my friends. One way. Well, doesn't that sound exclusive? Yes. It's very exclusive, so exclusive that in the Gospels, he refers to the broad path, right, that leads to hell. In other words, everybody's on the road to hell. But the way to heaven is what? Narrow. It's restricted. What's the restriction? The restriction is you have to come through the cross. You have to come through Christ. That's the only way. And if you don't, this eternal punishment, this outer darkness, this weeping and gnashing of teeth is where you will end up one day in spite of all your, quote, good works by your own standard. In John chapter 5, he says that God is going to make Christ judge. And when that inevitable day of wrath comes, it's going to be the day of the Lord as it's identified, and it's going to be he himself, none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, who will be the final judge and executor of all those who have not come to him. Now that sounds hard, but that's the truth. 
You know, it's kind of like going to the doctor and you get a, you know, you, your test comes up and maybe you got some cancer somewhere in your body and, and the doctor goes, well, you know, it's, it's okay. Uh, you know, I, I don't really want to tell this guy he's got terminal cancer, but I mean, what would you want? Would you want him to lie to you and just say, oh, everything's rosy? No, you would want the truth as hard as it may be to hear. And that's what the word of God does. It tells us the truth. It doesn't make things rosy when they're not. And trust me, an eternal punishment of divine judgment in everlasting hell forever is not something that's rosy. It's something to be feared. It's something to be avoided at all costs. And that's why God sent his son. Turn over to Revelation chapter 20, just real quick. Revelation chapter 20, because this is the final judgment that's described. And and I'm just kind of laying the foundation here to get you into the mindset that God is a vengeful God. He is a God of wrath. And he will carry out his punishment on all unrighteousness. In, In Revelation chapter 20, look at what it says there in verse 11. This is the apostle John writing this by divine inspiration. He says in verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. Verse 12, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in these books. Remember I told you God is recording everything in heaven? Every little thing. Doesn't matter what it is. It's it's there, black and white. According to what he has done, verse 13, And the sea gave up their dead, which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged. So you have this ultimate judgment of everyone, each one of them, according to what they had done. Notice it doesn't say he's judging the whole group. No, you're going to be for God. You're going to be standing before a holy God, completely unveiled. There's not going to be anything you're going to keep from him. He's going to see everything. And it says, according to what they had done. Verse 14, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. The first death is what? When we die, right? Physically, and the spiritual death. Second death, the second death, the lake of fire, verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That, that is just, those are hard words to even perceive, let alone read. But this is what the future history describing the great white throne judgment is. And the judge is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, the Father has committed to him all judgment. Now he can be your Savior. But if you don't come to him as your Savior, one day you will come face to face with Christ as your judge. Make no mistake about it. And at his return, this judgment will take place. This is the subject, really, what Paul's talking about here back in, go back to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 
And we've been looking at verses 6 through 10. And you can just remain seated this morning, and we've read this several times, but I just want to reread this passage because you can see the vivid imagery that Paul is trying to use to describe this future judgment. Verse 6, Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who will afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, and he tells us how, with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what kind of vengeance is he going to give out? It says in verse 9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all those who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. The second coming of Jesus Christ is the theme that Paul is talking about here. And there's going to be joys that accompany that and there's going to be sorrows that accompany that. Now last week, someone asked me the question, I I can't remember who, but somebody asked me the question, um, well, why does he even have to come back? Why can't he just take us up there and <laughs> avoid all this? That kind of makes sense, right? I mean, why, why couldn't he just do that? It'd be a lot easier. Well, he comes back from heaven um, for two reasons. The first one we see in verse 8 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. It says, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the Lord is returning for the sole purpose of carrying out vengeance or retribution, you could call it, um, on unrighteousness, on sin, on those who have not come to his son, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, by faith. The Lord will say, well, you know what? You didn't come to me as your savior. Guess what? I'm coming to you as a judge. There will be no grace. There will be no way out of that at that point. You will be judged according to your sins for all of eternity. But there's another reason why he has to come back. And he states that in verse 7. Just look at the verse before that. And he says, and to grant what? Relief to those who are afflicted. Christ is coming back for two purposes. One, to carry out vengeance on all unrighteousness, all sin. But secondly, he's going to be coming back to grant relief to those who are afflicted. So there's the joy and the sorrow of his return. For those that are believers, they're going to say, wow, great, he's here, finally. (laughs) Go get him, God, right? I mean, and yet, for those who don't know Christ, there's going to be vengeance and wrath that's incredible that they will have to endure for all eternity and that day is coming when it says he shall be revealed and now we we've looked at this and we're going to just kind of remind you when the lord jesus christ is revealed from heaven he will deal out eternal punishment to unbelievers but he will also share his glory with his saints Joy, sorrow, joy, sorrow. Just keep thinking that. Last week, we looked at the first point. The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven in a mighty display of power and glory. 
And we talked about when he's talking about that word there revealed, it's talking about the word that we could say revelation or uh, apocalypsis or we get the word uh, apocalypse. And he's talking about an uncovering, an unveiling to people who do not know him. So a lot of times when it's used, it's talking about he's making himself known to people who do not know God, who are, he is hidden from them. It's an unveiling. And when Christ returns, he will be returning to a, cry, a world who for the most part does not know him, just like it is today. Most of the world does not know the Lord Jesus Christ. Most of the world does not understand who he is. They don't understand their need of a savior. They don't perceive any of that. And when Jesus comes the second time, he will come in full, unveiled divine glory. We talked about how the first time he came, his glory was veiled. He came as a little baby, right? Uh, We didn't really understand who he was for the most part, even up until his death. A lot of people didn't understand who he was. But when he will come, the second time, he will come as the sovereign king of kings, the lord of lords, and it says that he will rule over the earth with a rod of iron. He's not going to have a wet noodle to hit people with. It's going to be a rod of iron. Okay? It's going to be something very serious. And he says when he comes, he's going to come from heaven. Why? Because that's where he's at. He's going to come with his mighty angels. We talked about that. And he's going to come in flaming fire. And that fire is really marked the, 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 the glorious judgment of God's presence. And that brings us to the point here today. When Jesus is revealed from heaven, he will deal out eternal punishment to unbelievers. See, if, if you are in Christ today, take a big breath and just kind of go, thank God. Because everything I'm talking about, pretty much, will not apply to you. But if you don't know Christ, if you have not put your faith or trust in Christ, you, you need to fear for your soul. Because this is what will await you. Because when Jesus is revealed from heaven, he will deal out, not temporary punishment, eternal punishment to all Unbelievers. It says there in verse 6, since indeed God considers it just to repay, to repay affliction, repay with affliction those who afflict you. Then he adds down in verses 8 and 9, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. And you say, well, I don't like this. (laughs) Yeah, frankly, I don't like it either. But that doesn't make it untrue. This is the truth of the word of God. This is telling us what will happen. And so you have to ask yourself, why will this happen? Why is God doing this? The reality of God's vengeance. You know, it goes against every grain of our being to think of God as this wrathful vengeance God. We would much rather think of him as a loving God who accepts all and everybody gets a trophy at the end of the the game and everything's just fine, just fine. But that's not the truth. That's not the truth. So God's judgment on unbelievers is absolutely righteous. Look at verse 8. He says he will inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey 
the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. On the face, that word vengeance, in our mind, we picture something ugly. We, we picture something harsh. I mean, if I said to you, you know what, I can't wait to get out of here this morning because, you know, I was down at the grocery store the other day and I can't wait to go there and inflict vengeance on that, on that cashier because they were just so rude. To me. You would go, whoa, pastor, man, what's wrong with you? Right? That would not be a good thing. And so when we hear God is a God of vengeance, we just go, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. But he is. It may seem extreme, but that word ectokasis in the original Greek, at the center of that root word comes the meaning of our word just. See, God is a just God. It's where we get the word justice or justified or righteous or righteousness. See, this is speaking of God's full punishment, full just righteous punishment, his full righteous vengeance. Now, God's vengeance is not like our vengeance. Praise the Lord, because God is holy. Right? We can't attribute ill motive or sinful actions to a holy God, or he wouldn't be a holy God. Right? So whatever God does, even though we don't understand it at times, it has to be good. It has to be righteous. It has to be just. And because God is holy... It's not unruly, it's not selfish, it's not even sinful vengeance. It's perfect vengeance. It's like when the, God, when the Bible speaks of God as being angry, or it speaks of, the God, as, of God as hating sin. You know, we, we think, well, we shouldn't teach people to hate. Well, there are certain things that we should hate. With kind of a divine hatred. The, the unfortunate thing is, is we have a flesh body, and so usually the, the hatred gets mixed up with sinful motives and thinking thoughts, and, and so it's, it's tainted by sin, but not so with God, because God is perfect in every way. It's not the same passionate kind of anger that we think of when we think of carrying out vengeance. That kind of stuff is ugly. That's self-seeking. Perhaps even it's, it's unjust. There's a story in Matthew 18, you don't have to turn there, but you remember this story. He tells a story about a man who had some debtors, and they owed him a, a reasonable amount. Remember that parable? And instead of helping them trying to, to pay what was owed, um, what did he do? He grabbed them all and he threw them in prison, debtor's prison. Well, now he's definitely not getting his money back. Until they could pay him back. Well, how are they going to get the money if they're in, they're in prison? It doesn't make any sense. But that's the kind of vengeance that this person had in their heart. That's judgment that's pronounced on that man. That was human vengeance. Filled with hostility and anger. That's not the vengeance of God. God's full punishment has at its core his justice, his righteousness, and his holiness. So it has to be perfect vengeance in every way. That's why in Romans 12, verse 19, Paul writes this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Don't try to go down this vengeance road as a, as a fallen sinner, even as a Christian, because you still have a, a fallen flesh. He says, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That comes out of Deuteronomy 32, 35. 
So don't take your own vengeance, is what Scripture teaches. It will no doubt be filled with sin and selfishness and and be unholy vengeance. Don't do that. Let God take care of it. Let God deal with it. And God will take vengeance, and the Son will be the instrument of that vengeance one day. If you watch the news at all, you probably get very frustrated with, no matter what side you're on, really, what's going on in our country. And the only thing that brings me any kind of reprieve is when I think, you know what, one day God's going to meet all this out. God will take care of it. Leave it to God. The Bible repeatedly teaches us in the New Testament, the Old Testament, that God will deal out vengeance to sinners. So when the next time somebody tells you, well, I don't believe that's, that's not the God of the Bible. Oh, yes, it is. As a matter of fact, there's, there's just a couple verses here. I'll just leave with you out of the imprecatory psalms. The imprecatory psalms were, were psalms. You know, we often think of psalms as these wonderful little writings, poems, songs that just make us feel so happy and glad. Well, there's what we call imprecatory psalms, and imprecatory psalms are the psalms that contain curses or prayers for punishment against the psalms, psalmist's enemies. To imprecate means to invoke evil upon or to curse somebody. This, these are actually in the psalms. In Psalm 58.10, it says, The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. These are not easy words to read or to hear. Psalm 68, verse 21. Surely God will shatter the head of his enemies, the hairy crown of him who goes on in his guilty deeds. Or Psalm 69, verse 27. Add iniquity to their iniquity, and may they come into your, and they may not come into your righteousness. Or Psalm 79, verse 12. And return to our neighbors sevenfold into their bosom the reproach with which they have reproached you, O Lord. See, these are prayers that the psalmist is praying against his enemies, and therefore, since they're his enemies, they're the enemies of God as well. Or Psalm 109.12, the last one was Psalm 79.12, this one's Psalm 109.12. Let there be none to extend loving kindness to him, nor any to be gracious to his fatherless children. Speaking of the enemies of God. Psalm 137, verse 9, how blessed will be the one who seizes and dashes your little ones against the rock. Wow. So God is not only taking out vengeance on the sinner, but even on the children of the sinners. See, this is why when we read in the Old Testament, you know, and God went in and he made them wipe out the entire nation of whatever. We scratch our heads and go, that that just doesn't sound right. I mean, in, in some cases, okay, you have to kill all the adults, you kill all the young people, you kill all their animals, you kill all their crops, you make it a wasteland. And we, we look up into heaven and we go, God, that's not right. We forget who we're dealing with. We're dealing with a holy God who knows everything, and he's only doing what is good and righteous and just. Even though we don't understand it. You have to end there. You have to begin there with the holiness of God. In Psalm 139, 
which is a psalm we read a lot, verses 21 to 22, he writes this. He says, Do I not hate even those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. Psalm 89, verse 9 says, It is the Lord who is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. 2 Peter 4.8, the Apostle Paul refers to the Lord as the righteous judge. Revelation 19, John hears this great voice of multitude of heaven, and he, the, the voices say this in verses 1 and 2 of Revelation 19, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. Or even Abraham in the book of Genesis chapter 18 verse 25 asks this question, shall not the judge of the earth deal justly? The answer is of course he will. Of course. No one can hide any deed, any word, any thought from the fiery, penetrating gaze of the Lord because he's omniscient. He knows everything. Hebrews 4.13 says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So there's not going to be any escape. There's not going to be any mercy at this point. There's not going to be any grace extended for unbelievers on this day. There's only going to be justice. Only justice. Romans 2.6, God will render each person according to his deeds. Nobody's going to be standing before the Lord shaking their fist in his hand. How dare you? No, I didn't. No. As a matter of fact, Romans chapter 3, verse 19, listen to this. It says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. See, each person will get exactly what they deserve on this day. Now, what's interesting when you read about hell throughout the Gospels and throughout the Word of God, it really gives us an idea, a picture, that there are different degrees of punishment in hell. I mean, if you can even imagine that. I mean, to be in hell just in general is not going to be good. But can you imagine for some people it's going to be worse than others? The Bible clearly indicates this. Jesus taught that there were degrees of punishment in hell, uh, kind of proportionate to the the person's sin and to the degree of the light that was given to them. Uh, He speaks of this in Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12 and verse 47, he, he tells this story. He says, and that servant who knew his master's will but did not, get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But 
verse 48 says, but to the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a lighter beating. Everyone to whom much was given of much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. So there are different degrees of punishment in heaven. In the parable in Matthew chapter 11, um, not a parable, but the passage of Matthew chapter 11, Jesus kind of reveals that, that God not only knows what everybody did as far as the actions, but he also knows um, what they would have done if they would have been given different revelation. Uh, what's interesting, in Matthew 11, you can turn over there and just read along with me, verse 21, Matthew 11, the Lord says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. He's pronouncing judgment on these places. And then he says, For if the mighty works done in you had, be done, had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, verse 22, Matthew 11, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted in heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. And you remember how that, Sodom and Gomorrah, ended, right? Now, well, I mean, God burned it up in judgment, fire, hellfire, and brimstone. But he says it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon and for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for these cities that had actually experienced and seen Jesus personally and all of his miracles, and yet they still rejected him. And he says, because if these ancient cities would have seen these miracles, they would have repented. The angels who went to Sodom to rescue Lot could have performed impressive miracles if that had been God's will. And Jesus indicates that if they had done some kind of miraculous thing in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented and they would have been spared. But God didn't grant them such miracles and Sodom will be judged, although not as severely as Capernaum, which saw Jesus' miracles. So the people of Sodom will have no grounds to accuse God of any kind of injustice because he did not perform miracles that would have led them to repentance. Think about that. God could have done miracles in their sight and they could have repented and been saved. But he didn't do it. Because it wasn't his will. See, he does not owe mercy to any sinner. We think in our mindset, well, God owes, no, no, no. He does not owe you mercy. He owes you judgment. He owes you eternal wrath. That's what you have awaiting for you unless you turn to Christ. 
Every sinner who is not covered by the blood of Christ and his righteousness, the Bible says, will be judged by the righteous judge of the earth. That's hard for us to hear, but it's true. I want to share one other parable about a vineyard out of Luke 22. Luke 22. And this is the Lord telling this story. And we're familiar with this, but just follow along as I read in beginning in verse 9 of, of Luke 20. Excuse me, Luke 20, not 22. Luke 20, verse 9. It says, And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. Verse 10, when the time came, he came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And finally, he sent a third, verse 12, and this one also they wounded and cast out. Verse 13, then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. Look at what it says in verse 14. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When then, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Remember, Jesus is telling this parable, and we know what this, this parable is about, right? It's about the nation of Israel. This is what he's speaking of here. He's basically telling us that God placed them in his vineyard, as it were. And why were they there? To tend to the truth. They were given the word of God. They were to take the word of God and, and dispel it among those in the world. But what they do? They, they hoarded it. <laughs> they said, oh, we're God's special people. We're, we're going to draw lines around our, ourselves and, and keep ourselves just away from everybody because we don't want anybody else to be like us. He's our God. This is our word. It's our truth. And God sent prophets to Israel to say, hey, you're not doing the right thing here. And what did they do to the prophets? The Old Testament tells us they stoned the prophets. They abused the prophets. They killed the prophets. And finally, God sent his son. And what did they do to him? They killed him. Well, what does God say he's going to do about that? Look at verse 16. It says, he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. Think about that. In the face of a holy God, they're saying, how dare you? You're not going to do that. There's no way. But it happened. <laughs> you remember the date, 70 AD. Destruction fell upon Jerusalem, on Israel. And really, it was then that the Lord turned to his church, to those outside of Israel, and began to do a work there. 
call them to be his own people for a period of time. And by the way this ends, it directly, it's directly at the point at what we're looking at, Jesus looking at judgment. Look at verse 17. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. What's he do? He changes this metaphor of this parable from the vineyard to a stone. And it says, basically, they rejected the stone. That's the language of Psalm 118. The stone which the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone. And then he says this in verse 18, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken into pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The idea is it will grind you into powder. What a frightening image of Jesus who is depicted as a stone. If you fall on him, he shatters you into pieces. If he falls on you, he grinds you to powder. This is speaking of Jesus not as our Savior, but as a judge. This is what happens when he returns. Luke calls this in Luke 21, 22, the days of vengeance. As a church, we don't believe that the church replaced Israel. That's not biblical. Because the Bible clearly says that even Israel will come to believe in the Son one day. You can read Romans 11, Zechariah 12, 10. Different verses. But it's important that we realize that God's vengeance is real. And it's going to fall on all those who do not put their faith, their trust in Christ. It will fall on unbelievers. They will face the righteous, just judgment of God. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we thank you that we do live in a day of grace, a church age where your gospel goes forth boldly. And Lord, as a church, we have a responsibility as we live in this wicked and fallen, sin-filled world to take this gospel, the good news that Jesus does forgive those who will turn to him with the burden of sin. Lord, if we would just learn to stop trying to figure this out on our own and try to work our way to heaven, that's never going to work out. We have to utterly forsake ourselves. The Bible says that we have to even deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow you. Then we can be your disciple. Then we can be called followers of Christ. But so many within the church are holding on to something. They're not giving it all to you. They may be coming to church, they may be coming even during the week, midweek, Bible study, whatever it is, but they're still a, a portion of their life, they're holding back, they're not surrendering. Think of the hymn, I surrender all. That's what we need to be doing when we come to Jesus. We can't bring anything in our hand, we come empty-handed with our arms reached out to the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If that's the case, if that's where you find yourself this morning, convicted of your own sin before a holy God, and you wonder, what do I do? You cry out to the Lord. You cry out to Christ. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me from my sin. 
He will do that if it comes from a genuine, repentant heart. A heart that's turning from self to the Savior. And Lord, as believers, we just pray that you would give us the boldness that we need. Life is too short and hell is too hot to mess around with the message of the gospel. We want to be as clear as we can be when we are sharing the gospel with others, when we are sharing the good news that Jesus does save. And I pray that you would give us the boldness to do that, whether it's the person at the grocery store or the gas station or a family member. Lord, help us to put political correctness aside and say we, we fear for your soul, your eternal soul, much more than we fear our friendship with you or whether you're going to like us anymore. And when you show the gospel with love and compassion, people's ears perk up because they can look at your own life and see that the difference that Christ has made in our lives can be a difference that he can make in their lives. And so, Lord, we commit all these things to you this morning. We pray for our fellowship time across the way. We pray that it would be edifying, conversations would be edifying, that the food would be a blessing to our bodies. Thank you for those who are preparing it even now. And pray that you would just bless us. Um, Take us home safely. Give us a good remainder of the day with our family and friends. We ask you to bless this in Jesus' precious name. All God's people said, amen. Amen.